Chapter Twenty Eight of Marriage, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Marriage, Volume One, by Susan Edmonstone Ferrier. Chapter Twenty Eight. Her only labor was to kill the time, and labor dire it is, and weary woe. Castle of Indolence. Years had rolled on amidst heartless pleasures and joyless amusements, but Lady Juliana was made neither the wiser nor the better by added years and increased experience. Time had in vain turned his glass before eyes still dazzled with the gaudy allurements of the world, for she took no note of time, but as the thing that was to take her to the opera and the park, and that sometimes hurried her excessively, and sometimes bored her to death. At length she was compelled to abandon her chase after happiness, in the only sphere where she believed it was to be found. Lord Courtland's declining health unfitted him for the dissipation of a London life, and, by the advice of his physician, he resolved upon retiring to a country seat which he possessed in the vicinity of Bath. Lady Juliana was in despair at the thoughts of this sudden wrench from what she termed life, but she had no resource for though her good-natured husband gave her the whole of General Cameron's allowance, that scarcely served to keep her in clothes, and though her brother was perfectly willing that she and her children should occupy apartments in his house, yet he would have been equally acquiescent had she proposed to remove from it. Lady Juliana had a sort of instinctive knowledge of this, which prevented her from breaking out into open remonstrance. She therefore contented herself with being more than usually peevish and irascible to her servants and children, and talking to her friends of the prodigious sacrifice she was about to make for her brother and his family, as if it had been the cutting off of a hand or the plucking out of an eye. To have heard her, anyone unaccustomed to the hyperbole of fashionable language, would have deemed Botany Bay the nearest possible point of destination. Parting from her fashionable acquaintances was tearing herself from all she loved. Quitting London was bidding adieu to the world. Of course there could be no society where she was going, but still she would do her duty. She would not desert dear Frederick and his poor children. In short, no martyr was ever led to the stake with half the notions of heroism and self-devotion as those with which Lady Juliana stepped into the barouche that was to conduct her to Beech Park. In the society of piping bullfinches, pink canaries, gray parrots, goldfish, green squirrels, Italian greyhounds, and French poodles, she sought a refuge from despair. But even these varied charms, after a while, failed to please. The bullfinches grew hoarse, the canaries turned brown, the parrots became stupid, the goldfish would not eat, the squirrels were cross, the dogs fought. Even a shell grotto that was constructing fell down, and by the time the aviary and conservatory were filled, they had lost their interest. The children were the next subjects for her ladyship's ennui to discharge itself upon. Lord Courtland had a son some years older, and a daughter nearly of the same age as her own. It suddenly occurred to her that they must be educated, and that she would educate the girls herself. As the first step, she engaged two governesses, French and Italian. Modern treatises on the subject of education were ordered from London, looked at, admired, and arranged on gilded shelves and sofa tables. And could their contents have exhaled with the odors of their Russia leather bindings, 
Lady Juliana's dressing-room would have been what Sir Joshua Reynolds says every seminary of learning is, an atmosphere of floating knowledge. But amidst this splendid display of human lore, the book found no place. She had heard of the Bible, however, and even knew it was a book appointed to be read in churches and given to poor people, along with Rumford soup and flannel shirts. But as the rule of life, as the book that alone could make wise unto salvation, this Christian parent was ignorant as the Hottentot or Hindu. Three days beheld the rise, progress, and decline of Lady Juliana's whole system of education, and it would have been well for the children had the trust been delegated to those better qualified to discharge it. But neither of the preceptresses was better skilled in the only true knowledge. Signora Cicciani was a bigoted Catholic, whose faith hung upon her beads, and Madame Grignon was an esprit forte, who had no faith in anything but les plaisirs. But the Signora's singing was heavenly, and Madame's dancing was divine. And what lacked there more? So passed the first years of beings training for immortality. The children insensibly ceased to be children, and Lady Juliana would have beheld the increasing height and beauty of her daughter with extreme disapprobation, had not that beauty, by awakening her ambition, also excited her affection, if the term affection could be applied to that heterogeneous mass of feelings and propensities that shape had none distinguishable. Lady Juliana had fallen into an error very common with wiser heads than hers, that of mistaking the effect for the cause. She looked no farther than to her union with Henry Douglas for the foundation of all her unhappiness. It never once occurred to her that her marriage was only the consequence of something previously wrong. She saw not the headstrong passions that had impelled her to please herself, no matter at what price. She thought not of the want of principle, she blushed not at the want of delicacy, that had led her to deceive a parent and elope with a man to whose character she was a total stranger. She therefore considered herself as having fallen a victim to love, and could she only save her daughter from a similar error, she might yet, by her means, retrieve her fallen fortune. To implant principles of religion and virtue in her mind was not within the compass of her own, but she could scoff at every pure and generous affection, she could ridicule every disinterested attachment, and she could expatiate on the never-fading joys that attend on wealth and titles, jewels and equipages. And all this she did in the belief that she was acting the part of a most wise and tender parent. The seed, thus carefully sown, promised to bring forth an abundant harvest. At eighteen, Adelaide Douglas was as heartless and ambitious as she was beautiful and accomplished but the surface was covered with flowers, and who would have thought of analyzing the soil? It sometimes happens that the very means used with success in the formation of one character produce a totally opposite effect upon another. The mind of Lady Emily Lendor had undergone exactly the same process in its formation as that of her cousin, yet in all things they differed. Whether it were the independence of high birth, or the pride of a mind conscious of its own powers, she had hitherto resisted the sophistry of her governesses and the solecisms of her aunt. But her notions of right and wrong were too crude to influence the general tenor of her life, or to operate as restraints upon a naturally high spirit and impetuous temper. Not all the united efforts of her preceptresses had been able to form a manner for their pupil. 
nor could their authority restrain her from saying what she thought, and doing what she pleased. And in spite of both precept and example, Lady Emily remained as unsupportably natural and sincere as she was beautiful and piquant. At six years old she had declared her intention of marrying her cousin Edward Douglas, and at eighteen her words were little less equivocal. Lord Cortland, who never disturbed himself about anything, was rather diverted with this juvenile attachment, and Lady Juliana, who cared little for her son, and still less for her niece, only wondered how people could be such fools as to think of marrying for love after she had told them how miserable it would make them. End of chapter 28 Recording by Patty Cunningham